Good morning, Gateway. Good morning. Happy first Sunday in August. That has absolutely no meaning, but uh, it is August. Summer is in full swing here. I know some of you are looking forward to events of this month because uh, for some of you, children will be going back to school. Let's hear it. Yeah. And it's to increase their education. That's what we're looking forward to. Absolutely. Well, I just got back from the West Coast. Lisa and I, she's wife over here. And we celebrated our 25th anniversary. Thank you. Thank you. And I think after two and a half decades with me, she deserved a trip. So if you see her today, hug her. She deserves that. West Coast was great, so I'm uh, just really getting back into the frenetic pace of of Northern Virginia, coming from the uh, somewhat subdued pace of the West Coast. So I'm going to try to bring some of that subdued, calm pace from the West Coast. And if you haven't gone out there, if you haven't been to San Francisco and driven the Pacific Coast down to the south, I definitely recommend it. You may not come back. It is wonderful. So what are we doing today? We're continuing our series on the life of David, one of the most fascinating of all the people in the Bible. Last week, Dean Salami actually skipped ahead to the next chapter. He gave us a really good word about conflict and how to deal with it. And he looked at how David dealt with Saul and what a great model he presented for us to follow as we deal with conflict with each other. Now, before that, Ed looked at how God's purposes will be fulfilled. The Bible is very clear on that. God's purposes will always be fulfilled. And we can either align ourselves as human beings, align ourselves with God's purposes and benefit from that or ultimately oppose those purposes and be bruised by them and even crushed by them. And in a prior week, Ed also talked about how we see ourselves as the CEOs of our lives, but we fool ourselves if we take that to be our main identity because we're just not really that good at running our lives most of the time. So when I thought about these different themes, uh, in light of our tendency to go into conflict with one another and our nearsightedness in mistaking ourselves to be the prime movers of our lives, our inability to understand and accept God's purposes. What should we do? How do we react to these difficulties we have? Uh, And I think of it this way. We've got a difficulty on the the vertical axis. I know mathematicians in the audience are, are liking this now. They're getting into this now. The vertical axis, right? So that's us and God. We have difficulty with that. We also have difficulty with the horizontal Access, us and others. So is there, I thought to myself, is there a posture or a stance or an attitude that we can take that works for both? Is there an attitude that we can adapt or a practice that we can adopt that works for both the vertical and the horizontal. And I believe there is. And it goes by the name of submission. And I believe the story we're going to read today 
will teach us just what that submission looks like in reality. Now, I need to back up because submission is not really a highly valued word in our culture. So it needs some definition. Now, what I mean by submission, I'm not talking about uh, submission in terms of sheer power. I'm not talking about submitting to God or submitting to each other because they're going to make us cry uncle. One of the problems with submission is most of us, can we be honest, we've only seen a distorted version of this. We uh, have heard about husbands that abuse their wives and their children in the name of submission. We have heard of churches and organizations and cults that abuse their members under the umbrella of submission. And that's not what the Bible means by submission. You know what that is? That's a counterfeit. That's a counterfeit. You know, I've got to uh, tell you about counterfeits. When I was hired by the Customs Service, this is about a 1,000 years ago, at JFK Airport, one of our jobs was we had to, to distinguish between counterfeit goods and between real, real authentic goods. And what I mean by that, I mean by expensive handbags and jewelry, things that were copyrighted and trademark. I'm talking about Versace and Fendi and Louis Vuitton. So as these things were imported, we had to be able to distinguish between the authentic and the counterfeit. And you know what? The untrained eye, for some of these, the counterfeits are really good. But we, as part of our training, we learned about these things. So we learned, for example, when you have a bag that has the Louis Vuitton insignia on it, the Louis Vuitton insignia will never be on the seam. It'll always be visible on the bag. That's useless information for you, of course. Okay, what did you learn at church today? I learned about Louis Vuitton. I don't know what that guy was talking about. I don't know. You know what no one ever tried to counterfeit? And no insult to anybody, no one ever tried to counterfeit Kmart. I hope no one works for Kmart here. My condolences. We will hug you. Yes. No one counterfeits Kmart clothes or even Walmart clothes. And not for nothing, I do shop at Walmart sometimes for clothing. And some of you are thinking, yeah, we can tell. (laughs) Nobody counterfeits those. You know why? Because they're not of high value. You can almost tell the value of something by how often you see it counterfeited. If you're going to counterfeit currency, you don't copy pennies, you copy hundreds. And that's what we see with submission. We see it counterfeited in our culture. What I'm talking about is not submission as a reaction to power. I'm talking about submission as a realization of need. I'll say it again. Submission in the Bible is not a reaction to power. It comes out of a realization of need. So what we want to do when we look at this passage is, uh, the lens we're going to use is, what does real submission look like? What does submission to God look like? What does submission to each other really look like? That's our lens today. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the passage. And those of you that have your phones, those of you that persist in killing trees and actually have a printed book, you can use that. That's fine also. You can also read the screen if you'd like to do that. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 20. 
23. We're going to read this. I'm going to fill in some details as we read. And then at the end, we're going to have some takeaways. See what we can get out of this. So pray with me, please, before we start reading. Lord, I know we're in a lot of different places today. Some of us are really dragging with you. Some of us are running with you. Some of us are kind of aimless. Um, Some of us are in a summer slump. We're out of practice with you. And some of us don't even know where we are. And Lord, I'm, I'm so confident in you because you know far better than I do. You know everybody's place today. You know the people that wandered in here today not knowing what to expect. And you know how to meet them where they are. So I, I pray for every single person here and myself that you would meet us today where we are, where we need to be met, even more than what we think we need, that you would meet us in what we really need. So please speak to us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the backdrop of this, David is on the run from from Saul. And those of you that have been tracking with this over the summer, this is starting to get a little bit monotonous, isn't it? You know, I mean, think, you read, you know, you pull out the chapter, chapter 19, okay, Saul is after David, David's on the run. Chapter 20, Saul's after David, David's on the run. You know, this is starting to feel like, do you guys remember um, Elmer Fudd? Okay, Saul is turning into Elmer Fudd. He really is, because what's he, he's hunting wabbits. That's what he's doing. And his wabbit is David. And he can't get out of that mode, just like Elmer Fudd. Except he's a little bit more deadly than Elmer Fudd. He is. So this has become David's new normal. David is on the run for his life. David has gone from kind of a a boring existence. In some ways, he was the shepherd boy. And then he moved up a notch. Then he's in in the royal courts, sleeping in the same bed every night. Now he's a nomad. His new normal is he's on the run. So we picked this up. When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, go, attack the Philistines and save Keilah. Just a little note, Keilah is, that's not where David was staying, but it was a a nearby town or small city that was walled in, and it seems like now it's under attack from this group of people, this nation known as the Philistines. So David hears about this, and although he doesn't have to do anything about it, he brings it to God, and God says, go and attack it. But listen to what David's men say in verse 3. David's men said to him, here, here in Judah, we're afraid. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Keilah, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah. They fought the Philistines, and they carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines, and he saved the people of Keilah. And there's a note for us 
Now Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Keilah. I will translate that for you in a second. So stand by for the translation. We see David doing something here that we've never seen Saul do. Remember, Saul was the king before David, and Saul had the, you know, the kingly responsibilities. Saul never inquired of the Lord. He never did. Never inquired of the Lord. Here we see David do this. Now, I'm not sure exactly how he does that. You know, the, the Bible references Abiathar was the last priest. Saul killed all the priests. You know, the priests were the pipeline to God at this time. Saul killed them all. Saul effectively cut the pipeline to God. One of them escaped when he took them all to the sword. It was Abiathar, and he brought the ephod with him. The ephod has not survived in, in history. There's no archaeologist that has found this thing. All we know about it is from descriptions in the book of Exodus when the building of it was prescribed or the making of it was prescribed. It's a vestment and it had precious stones on it that represented the tribes of Israel. And the priest would use this vestment to communicate with God. We're not really sure how he did that, but it's almost like the priestly hotline to God. That's how it worked. It was the red phone to God. So, so David's like, we, we need to talk to God because I don't know what to do. He inquires of the Lord. David is in a position of need. He doesn't know what to do, so he seeks God. You know, this is the beginning of a life habit for David. He's going to do this repeatedly in the rest of this book. He's going to do it for battle plans. And you know, if God's going to give him specific battle plans through this inquiring. He's going to do it when he's puzzled. God, why is there a famine? And God's going to tell him why there's a famine. David is doing something that Saul never did. Actually, I'm not exactly precise. Saul does go to inquire of the Lord. In chapter 28, he's terrified that the Philistines are going to take his kingdom away. So he goes, this is how Saul inquires of the Lord. He goes to a witch. And he uses the witch to communicate with, this. things get a little hinky in this chapter, to communicate with the dead prophet Samuel. Here we see David submit to God. And he goes with his men to rescue the town of Keilah. Let's go on in verse 7. Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah, and he said, God has delivered him into my hands. For David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up his forces for battle to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. We're going to come back to Saul's view of God in a second, but I, I just want you to notice something. Saul is mustering all his troops to go to David. Saul is the commander of tens of thousands of hard, battle-hardened warriors. How many men does David have? He has 600 men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the effort. Yeah, you think? <laughs> Give me that thing. We need to talk now. David said, Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. 
And they ask God two questions. They ask two. Will the citizens of Kilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord, God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. Again, David asked, will the citizens of Kilah surrender me and my men to Saul? The citizens of Kilah that I've just rescued? Will they surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So David has saved Keilah and so much for gratitude. God told him that. People you just saved, they're going to hand you over in a heartbeat, David, to save their own skin. But do you notice something here? David is growing. He's growing. Do you notice how he asked about his men? Lord, are they going to hand me and, and my men over to Saul? He's concerned about them. You know, David has gone from being a solitary warrior, you know, uh, the shepherd boy that fought the bear and the lion, and then Goliath he took down single-handedly. We heard about that a few weeks ago. But he's grown now. He sees himself now. I am responsible for these men. It's not just about me. He's growing into his kingship. We continue. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he did not go there. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. David is in the desert. Put that in the parentheses. We're going to look at that at the end. Very important. While David was at Horesh in the desert as if he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. David gets a visitor. In verse 16 it says, And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. Jonathan makes a special trip, and he knows this is in everything his father stands for. This is against that. He knows that. He's still going to go and make this encouraging trip to David. More on Jonathan later. But it says after the two made a covenant before the Lord, and they actually renewed. This is, we've seen this before between the two of them. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, uh, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hakilah, south of Jeshimon? Now, your majesty, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for giving him into your hands. <laughs> Brownie points. <laughs> They're trying to get in good with Saul. Again, they're going to hand David over in a heartbeat. And Saul replied, listen to this. He says, the Lord bless you for your concern for me. Go and get more information. Find out where David usually goes and who's seen him there. They tell me he's very crafty. Does it take one to know one? 
find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information, then I'll go with you. If he's in the area, I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. Did, did you notice Saul's response here? The Lord bless you. You know, Saul never became a total unbeliever. He never really did. He always retained, and that's what makes him so tragic. He always maintained some, some awareness, awareness of God. You know what he never got, though? He never got the idea of the relationship of interacting with God. He never got that. He never got hold of that great principle that Ed talked about a few weeks ago, that God's purposes will be fulfilled and we need to align ourselves and get behind those purposes. In Saul's mind, he inverted that. In Saul's mind, it was Saul's purposes that will be fulfilled. And God is there to help carry them out. I think Saul looked at God as useful. I think on planet Saul, planet Saul was the center of the universe. And everything else orbited around planet Saul, including God. So we read on. Verse 24, so they set out and went to Ziph, ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Naon, in the Arabah, south of Jeshimon, Saul and his men began the search, and when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Maon. When Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. And I got to tell you, HBO special, this is when the music is going to be cued, because listen to this. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul and his forces are closing in on David and his men to capture them when all of a sudden, a messenger comes to Saul saying, Saul, come quickly. The Philistines are raiding the land. So Saul breaks off his pursuit of David and he goes to face the Philistines. The Bible says that's why they call this place Selah Hamalakoth which in the Hebrew means place of parting. David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. So Saul is about to get David. It's, it's done. I mean, this is the cliffhanger. I got to say, if this was the miniseries, this is where they would cut it for next week, right? You know, you see them chasing around the mound, cut to the station break, commercial. Next part will be next week. They keep you hanging, of course. Saul's about to get David. God steps in. Now think of what God does here. God uses the enemy to rescue David. If you look at this, this is a miracle. Now no natural laws were broken in the making of this miracle. Gravity was not suspended. But what did happen? The timing of this. This is God's hand intervening in David's life. This is God speaking through events to David saying, I got you. How do we get a hold of this? Individually, as a church, how do we get a hold of this? How do we submit and make room for God to do these things in our lives? We're going to look at three things very quickly today. The way we do this is we begin 
the lifelong habit of inquiring of the Lord. We begin the lifelong habit of inquiring of the Lord. We seek his mind on our lives. It means we don't do anything without first having a conversation with him. We ransack the book. Why else read the Bible, honestly, just for antiquarian interests? Yeah, it's fascinating. Great stories like this? No, we read it so we can get his mind. We study it. We think about it. We talk about it. We ransack it. What's most important to you, God? Help me to understand it. What do you want me to do? And do you know why we ask this? Have the awareness of our need. You know, human beings are really good at certain things, aren't we? We're, we're awesome. We're awesome at making stuff. We really are. We got that. We, really, we make some really neat stuff as humans. We're a science. We're, we're great at that. We're not so good at running our own lives. So we need to begin the habit, the lifelong habit of inquiring after God. And I have to say, for me, this has changed over the years. You know, I first became a Christian. This is going back a few decades now. Things were a little bit different. Things were a little more cut and dry. I felt like God would give me more direct commands. I felt like he was more audible in some ways. You know, John, go, go and talk to that person about me. I felt like he did that to me a lot. So then I'd have to go up to this person and tell them, hey, are you interested in, you know, do you want to do the four spiritual laws with me and go through this? Game? Or actually, it was mostly, can, can I get your opinion on this booklet? <laughs> and we'd, we'd have a conversation. I feel like he was more direct with, or go talk to that person. They're depressed. He was more direct with me. I feel like as time has gone on, he's gotten more subtle. And I wonder if, instead of giving me direct commands, he's more interested in me acting out of what he's built into me. Does that make sense? Rather than have to tell me all the time what to do, I think he's more interested in having me act out of what he has put into me. Those of you that have kids, you may... Think of this, you know, when your daughter is three years old, you're going to have a certain kind of conversation with her, and that's going to be different than the conversation you have with her when she's 18. Some of you are thinking that three-year-old conversation was much easier. (laughs) I wish we were back. It's going to be different. So that's what I've seen in my own life. We begin the lifelong habit of inquiring of the Lord. The second thing we need to do to learn how to do this, how to submit, is we learn to be Jonathan to one another. We learn to be Jonathan to one another. Let me say this extremely basically. We need each other. We need each other. This was never meant to be a solo effort. You know, the Apostle Paul, when he talks about the church, and he's not talking about the building, he's talking about the group of people that compose the church, one of the images he uses is a body. He says the church is is like a physical body. You can't get more interconnected than that. And you know one reason we need each other is because we get discouraged. We get discouraged. Life doesn't go the way we want it to. Or sometimes we get discouraged when it does go the way we want it to. 
we lose vision, we lose energy, we lose hope. We get discouraged. And I wonder, well, actually, I know, you know, that's how David felt at this point. You know, running from Saul was wearing this guy out. And I wonder if he was starting to think, you know, things weren't so bad when I was a shepherd. And I think, yeah, you know, all this started when, <laughs> when I got anointed for kingship. I wonder if things were just better back then. I wonder if David had these kinds of thoughts. I know I have. I suspect some of you have too. Do you know what you have inside of you if you are connected to Christ? You have words of life. You have words of life in you for somebody else. You have a cup of cold water for someone who's thirsty. And we need to be able to receive this from one another. Now, some of you are really good at the giving part. You're not so good at the receiving part. So submission means we learn how to receive from each other. And that's one reason why what Dean talked about last week, the conflict, resolving the conflict is so important. You can't be Jonathan to someone if you are in unresolved conflict with them. They won't be able to receive it, and you probably won't be able to deliver it. And I got to say, this is, I'm open. I'm in unresolved conflict with somebody right now. Not here. Not here. Okay, so some of you are like looking around. Is, is it me? Is it me? No, it's not me. Is John mad at me? <laughs> it's no one here. And I hope to resolve this in the next few weeks. So please, can you, I covet your prayers. I don't want it to linger. I don't want it to linger. We need to do away with that. We need to deal with it. Now, Jonathan, Jonathan is the key here. Can we agree that this guy is amazing? (laughs) This book is about David, isn't it? But Jonathan, this guy just grows before my eyes. The more I think about it, by all human rights, he should have been next on the throne. He's the son of the king. The way things work is, well, the king dies, and the firstborn, male, gets the throne. Jonathan should be the one who's being groomed for kingship. Instead, think of this now. God took the crown off of Jonathan's head and gave it to a peasant boy. And Jonathan accepted that. Jonathan submitted to God's plan. He didn't have to do that. He didn't. You know what he could have done? He could have ran a smear campaign. Not that we're going to see that between now and November. (laughs) He could have run a... Yeah. And and it would have been, you know, the the, the commercials would have said something. Israel. Hey, Israel. Don't you deserve better than this peasant boy? Jesse's runt. Don't you deserve better than that? You got royalty here, baby. He could have done that. He could even have had David in prison. Now think about this. He's son of the king. Jonathan is son of the king. He's got got juice. He could have had David in prison. He could have had David killed. But instead, he accepted the fact that David was going to be king. He submitted to David and to God's plan. But not just that. He could have said, David, 
All right. Look, for whatever reason, obviously God picked you. He didn't pick me. I wish you well. Rock on. And turned around and walked away. He could have done that. He didn't. Instead, he said, I will support you. Now, he could have stopped short. He could have said, David, okay, I'll make your campaign posters. Or I'll I'll give you two hours a day on the, the telemarketing. I'll make the calls. He could have done that. That wasn't enough for Jonathan. It wasn't enough. He said, David, I give you my heart. David, you got my heart. I'm going to be your deputy. Do you see what he said in this? I'm going to be second to you. I'm going to support you. I'm going to fight alongside you. You're going to lean on me, David. David, I give you my heart. That's what the covenant is. That's not a business contract. That's the heart. I give you my heart. Now, didn't Jonathan want to be the king? Of course he did. And I think he would have been magnificent. But Jonathan has learned something key. He has learned to sidestep his own ego for the sake of relationship. He has learned to sidestep his own ego so that he could build up David. And notice how David submitted to him. David took his words and he ate them. And they were exactly what David needed to hear. He received his words for what they were. They were God's words. And then they reaffirmed their covenant together. They pledged their lives to each other. You know, the Apostle Paul, writing to a church in a little little uh, Greek, Asia Minor place of Thessalonica, he says it this way. He says, we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Some translations say we were delighted. We were glad to share our very hearts. Some translations say, or our own souls. What if we became a church like that? A people who have learned to put ego aside so that they can give their lives to each other. Always looking to build each other up. Putting aside rivalry and competition. All the things that go on just as a natural way of doing business. But we put them aside here. People that give their hearts to each other, where we can resolve conflict. Because it's not about winning or losing, it's about the relationship. I think we would be an irresistible force in this culture if we could get there. So we need to learn to be Jonathan to one another. And finally... We learn how to submit to the desert. We learn how to submit to the desert. People don't go into the desert willingly. David didn't go in the desert willingly. He had no other place to go. And he found himself there. What is the desert? It's a place of dryness. The desert is a place where God is notable for his absence. I think some of you know what I'm talking about. It's a place where spiritual things are just hard. Let's get specific. Church becomes boring. The joy that you had before just becomes dry. The Bible starts to taste like sawdust. It's a place of death. Now, sometimes we're in the desert because of what 
people have done to us that precipitates it. Sometimes it's self-inflicted and that precipitates it. When we moved here from New York, kids were small. This was, what, 12 years ago already. Unbelievable. I remember writing in my journal, God, please don't let me go into the desert. I went into the desert. New job. New house. New church. And you guys were weird. (laughs) No, I was the weird one. Things are different here. And honestly, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know who I was after a while. I went into the desert. And it lasted for what? It actually took a few years before I came out of it. So in my case, what precipitated that was a life change. There are other circumstances that can be be a, a stepping stone into the desert, the loss of a loved one. Your health fails. You experience the death of a dream. And you ask, where is God? Where is he in this? I don't feel him. I don't see him. I don't hear him. He can't possibly be in this. And like David, we feel the shadow of discouragement over everything. And yet, like David, our calling when we are in the desert is to submit to the desert. Now, some of you might be thinking, hmm, yeah, you know, desert. Where where else in the Bible have we seen deserts? Why do we go in the desert? We go into the desert to experience the death of the self. It's a time when our self-fascination, our self-aggrandizement, our self-pity, self-reliance, and self-satisfaction shrivel like a slug in the sun. All the selves shrivel. It's where an old identity goes to die so that a new identity can be born. Can I say that again? The desert is a place where an old identity goes to die so that a new identity can be born. And we see this not only with David, but over and over in the Bible. Before Moses was ready to be the liberator of of his people, many of you know that story, he had to go into the desert. When God called his people out of slavery to Egypt, before they could become the people of God, before they could become Israel, they had to go through the desert. When Saul of Tarsus met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he experienced what Dean would call the mother of all cognitive resets, he had to go into the desert. Before he could become the greatest evangelist and theologian the Christian church has seen in 2,000 years, he had to go into the desert. And before Jesus could begin his ministry, the greatest expression of the power and love of God on planet Earth, God sent him into the desert. So if Israel, Moses, David, Jesus, and Paul had to go through the desert, why would we think that we can avoid it? If you're in the desert today, or when you will be, I'll say to you that you're going to be in good company. If you're in the desert right now, let me encourage you. God is doing something in you. He is clearing the old to make way for the new. Like David, he is preparing you for a crown. What? Yes. God is preparing you for a crown. What do you think Paul means when he says... In his letter to the Ephesians, he said, God has raised us up with Christ, and he seated us with him in heavenly places. That's not mere metaphor. 
He is preparing you for a position of authority. And what do you think Paul meant when in his letter to the Corinthians, the Corinthians were taking each other to court. They were asking unbelievers to judge between them. And Paul in his letter to them, he's so exasperated, he stops just short of saying, you idiots, don't you get it? You can't work this out among yourselves. You're going to unbelievers to judge these petty things between you. Don't you know that you will judge angels? We submit ourselves to the desert because there's a crown on the other side. David didn't stay in the desert forever, and neither will you. As David wrote in his 23rd Psalm, though I walk through the shadow of death, the valley of the shadow, you're with me. God is with you in the desert. The desert is not a place to live. It's a place to go through. We're meant to walk through the desert, not live there. So I still have California on my mind. So I have to bring in the illustration when we, when we flew west a few weeks ago. It's fun to look out the windows, isn't it? When you're in that airplane and to try to guess what state you're over. And once you pass the Midwest going, going west, you realize you got to go through a lot of brown before you get to that lovely city by the bay and the lush valleys of Napa and Sonoma. You need to pass through the desert of the American Southwest. You know, some of you today, it's been a while since you and God had a real conversation. It's been a while since you inquired of the Lord. Some of you have something hanging over your head. And you need to inquire of the Lord today. There will be an ephod down to my left in a few minutes. Of course, not a vestment, but we'll have some people there who will help you communicate with God. They'll help you make contact. Or maybe you're under the shadow of discouragement. You need a word of encouragement. Jonathan will be down on my left. Jonathan is thinking right now, uh, we didn't plan this. <laughs> Jonathan, in the form of people, will be down at my left if you need to talk to somebody or just grab somebody that you know is connected. Let them speak life to you. Or you're in the desert and your mouth is dry and you're wondering, how long? How long am I going to be here? And maybe there's one of you or five of you or ten of you and you've never made a connection before. Never made a connection with the one who went into the desert for you. The one who went into the ultimate desert and experienced death for you and came out on the other side and there was a crown for him. His name is Jesus. You can know him today. You can have a real, real relationship with him today if you've never had that. Come and speak to somebody down here. So let's pray. Stand with me, please. Lord, you know, this is just not easy for us. It's not. You know how how attached we are to ourselves. And how there's so many voices in our lives that are trying to convince us that the way to peace is self-aggrandizement or self-fascination. And Lord, we're also a people afflicted with busyness and there's always something else to do than try to connect with you and try to focus on building each other up. 
But Lord, we're at your mercy today, Lord, and we're throwing ourselves on your mercy that you would break through, that you would change us, God, that we would be a people that are just so interested in building each other up and speaking those words to those that are in the desert. We are so throwing ourselves on your mercy today, Lord, that you would move in our lives and make this real. Jesus' name.